along with my wife. We thank you for your kind hospitality as well as your welcome this morning. And I also just have to begin by saying thank you for your historic support of the International Mission Board. We have many of our workers out in the foyer, other organizations as well. So thank you so much for your missions giving. I already have my ticket. We're going to fly out today to Richmond. We have meetings this week and then, Lord willing, head back to Poland in about 10 days. And so if you hear nothing else, please hear our heartfelt gratitude for your investment in what God is doing around the world. Uh, Not long ago, I heard a story by one of our former vice presidents. Uh, It takes place in South Africa, and there, a church like this church sent a team, and they went there to work among the the poorest of the poor, the impoverished there. Uh, They they live in lean-tos, scrap metal, cardboard, just any way they can pull together a dwelling place. And this group from the States went there with translators, and they simply just shared the gospel. And the way they did it was because of the the difficulty of the dwelling there is they took sticky notes and uh, they used one color to say, quote, somebody was home and they were able to share with them and a different color showed that nobody was home. So as they crisscrossed their way through this shantytown, they could keep up. Well, at the end of the day, they'd seen a handful of people pray to receive Christ. It was a hot day, dusty day, and they began to make their way down the long road to get into the van and go to the air-conditioned hotel. Well, as they were getting in the van, they looked up and there was an older African gentleman shuffling toward them as fast as he could, yelling something in his dialect. Well, they couldn't really understand him. They got out of the van and the first thing they noticed was he had a sticky note on his forehead, which kind of got their attention. And finally, the translator could understand him. He said, I know what he's saying. He's saying, I want to be found. I want to be found. And so they got out of the van and shared the gospel through the translator and he prayed to receive Christ that day. Well, friend, if you hear nothing else, two billion plus people on planet Earth want to be found, and they've never heard. They've never said, I'll think about it. They've never said, let me get back to you. They've never said, let me, let me look further. They have never once heard that there's hope in the name of Jesus. That is not God's intention. And so as we gather this week for this GIC, you'll be hearing from many others that God is using around the world to bring the message of hope to those still waiting to be found. This morning, in just a few moments, I'll be in Revelation chapter 7, if you want to find that or power on to that place. And we'll look at what I call the end vision. And again, if you've lived in the States more than a couple of weeks, you've heard of a vision statement somewhere, whether it's IBM or Waffle House. Everybody has their vision statement. And by definition, that means a projection of a preferred future for an organization or a company. Well, this morning, I don't want to speak of a projection of a preferred future, but a preview of a promised future. And we find it in Revelation chapter 7. We get to look as if we're pulling back the curtain to see how does this all end. You remember John, the beloved apostle, is the writer, the human writer of the book of Revelation. And uh, he is taken up in the spirit, it says, there on the Isle of Patmos where he's been banished because of his testimony. And he begins to write as he hears And he writes the seven letters to the churches and he he gets to chapter 7 and he writes to the 144,000 and he gets to that ninth verse and the scene changes drastically. He says, and after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples and tongues stand before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. And palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and glory and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. My friend, that is how it all ends. And if you missed it, there's a word there repeatedly, all, all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. But listen carefully, that day is not this day. For there are over a thousand people groups still waiting to hear the gospel and to see a church planted in the context of their culture. We call these groups UUPGs, unengaged, unreached people groups. And again, it's hard to fathom in 2018, there are over a thousand of these. Some of them quite small tribes, for example, in the Amazon basin. Some of them number into the hundreds of thousands still waiting for their William Carey or their Adoniram Judson or their Hudson Taylor to come and bring the gospel and plant churches there. Now, we can be saddened that there are over a thousand or we can rejoice because there are less today than there were five years ago. Not just Southern Baptists, but many of our partners are engaging these once unengaged people groups. A story that I heard out of Africa just a few years ago astounded me. Uh, Word came to our workers there of such a people group. And so two missionaries, and there were four volunteers that were there, and they got into the SUV, and they drove to the end of the hardtop, the end of the gravel, the end of the dirt, and they parked, and they trekked nine hours over a mountainside, into a valley, and there was these grouping of villages that had never heard the gospel. And as they went into, it was a Muslim context, as they went into the clearing, as the laws of that culture, they were invited into two different huts. When the first hut was the senior missionary, he'd actually grown up as a missionary kid in that language group. He was very fluent in the language. It's an illiterate people group, so giving them a Bible really wouldn't help. And so he told the stories from creation to Christ. The three or four in the home listened attentively, but really were not interested. It was the second hut. And here was a new missionary struggling with the difficult language, trying his best to tell those stories, fumbling through them from creation to Christ, embarrassed, but having no choice. As he got to the end, he knew the question, do you want to receive God's free gift of salvation? And to his amazement, the man said, yes. Well, I'd love to say it was full of faith, but what his conclusion was, you didn't understand. Let me try again. And he said, in the beginning, and the man said, no, no, you don't understand. And he said, where you're standing five years ago, an angel appeared to me in my hut. And he said, tomorrow your wife will give birth to a son. And you're going to name him Isa, in their language, Jesus. And someday someone will come and tell you who Jesus is. And you listen and you follow. And he said, I've been waiting five years for you to come. And the first time in the history of that people group, there was a believer and there was a church. And God is doing that around the world. And so we're seeing Revelation 7 actually coming together even in our time. But Jesus said it would be so. Uh, Matthew 24, 14. He said, In this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world as a witness or a testimony to all the nations, and then the end shall come. And again, I believe God is sovereign. I don't believe he's waiting on our obedience or disobedience. But I believe he's descriptive here to say he has lovingly chosen that the gospel will go into all the nations, all the peoples, and then the end will come. But listen carefully. That doesn't mean it will go through us. He will raise up a people, whether it's Brazilians or Koreans or Russians or Ukrainians or Moldovans 
He will raise up a people. And my fear is he could bypass us unless we're obedient to follow him. All the nations will hear the gospel. And therefore, in Revelation 7, all nations are represented in the throne room. Hope your Bible's still open. I want to refer to this passage for our time remaining. Because it says it's an uncountable multitude. No one could count. That's a large number. And it goes on to describe them clothed in white robes. Well, what may that mean? Verse 13, if I'd continued reading, we'd pick up in verse 13, chapter 7. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, to John, These who are robed or clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there's some disagreement, but most scholars believe that this is a gathering of all the redeemed of all the ages. Old Testament period, New Testament, present day, until our Lord comes. All those who have confessed their faith in Christ will be gathered that day. And it says they're clothed in white robes. What a beautiful symbolic view. But it's interesting, that same phrase is used the chapter before. If your Bible's open, look at chapter 6. Another scene worth noting. Revelation 6 and 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because the testimony which they had maintained. He sees the martyrs under the altar. Verse 10, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a, tell me, church, a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. If you're listening carefully, that's the second sign that points us toward that end vision. The first is this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world as a witness to every nation, then the end will come. The second, when the last martyr is killed, apparently that will signal that last day. So church, what should we learn from that? Well, we should learn we, should, we shouldn't be surprised when people pay the ultimate price to share the gospel. Again, that's foreign to us. I was raised in Texas. Uh, I've never seen anyone on the streets of Houston killed for their faith. Uh, I, I doubt Northwest Mississippi that happens very often. But around the world, it does. Uh, in fact, some people refer to the first century uh, as the age of the martyrs. The catacombs, Paul executed in Rome, his, uh, traditionally we, we learned. But you need to understand, you live in the age of the martyrs. They're not so much here in the States, but around the world in the last hundred years, there have been more Christians killed for their faith than the previous 19 centuries combined. Let that sink in. Not that long ago, in one calendar year, 18 Pakistani pastors were executed for their faith. In one day, not too long ago, 16 North Korean Christians were killed simply because they follow the name of Jesus. In one closed country in North Africa, again, fairly recently, there's a, a movement of house churches underground. It's illegal. It's on the books in this country. If you're born in that country, you're born Muslim. And if you convert to Christianity, you may be executed legally, the death penalty, simply by naming the name of Jesus. And yet, tens of thousands of new believers are coming to faith in this country, and they meet underground. Well, one of the leaders of this house 
network movement, house church network, was seized just a, a couple years ago. He was taken to prison and he was beaten repeatedly for a week. And they kept asking the same two questions. Who are the other leaders and where do you meet? And he said, I, I will not say. And they continued to beat him. Finally, after a week, they brought his brother from his home village. They put a gun to his brother's head and said, tell us or he dies. And he said, I'm sorry. And watched as they killed his brother. That's not ancient history. That's in recent times. And so we need to understand Revelation 6 also is happening before our eyes. The number of the martyrs is coming to fulfillment. My friend, we've already gotten to the easy places. Those places that still remain, there are reasons that they're unreached, many of them. Some of them are hard to access. Some of them are governments that will not let us in. And there are many reasons. And yet the Great Commission doesn't say go into all the world that welcomes you. It says go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. So those clothed in white robes remind us of the cost to take the gospel to all the nations. The next phrase may be the most interesting. Uh, Verse 9, toward the end. Clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Now I've got several degrees from seminaries, but I, I never heard a lecture if there are palm trees in heaven, so I don't know. But there are palm branches in heaven, because it says so right here. Why? Why would God reveal to John and through John to us this throne room scene, white robes with palm branches? Well, you could probably guess. Uh, We speak of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry sometimes it's called, when Jesus entered Jerusalem the Sunday prior to his crucifixion on Friday. What you may not know, though, historically, about 200 years before Jesus had his palm parade, there was a guy named Judas Maccabees. Uh, His last name means the hammer. And uh, he actually and his family overthrew an evil occupying local government who had sacrificed a pig in the temple. And so when he came into Jerusalem as the conquering hero, history tells us they put down palm branches. Simply it was a sign of victory. Again, I shudder to think if it were done today, if we were to see that vision, if it would be like styrofoam number ones with old Miss or, or state or whatever, it just loses something to me. But it's a sign that this gospel wins. Now, why? Where's John? He's on the rock of an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And he's the last living apostle around 100 AD. And maybe some days he wakes up wondering, does this gospel really make it to every nation? And in the glimpse of an eye, he sees an uncountable multitude with the sign of victory. This gospel wins. I hate to admit to you, dear folks, but it's usually in the States I have to remind the church most often that the gospel's powerful. The gospel still heals. The gospel still repairs broken relationships. It still brings prodigals home. It still gives hope. It still gives life. One of my responsibilities actually is the the country of Canada. And just a, a few years ago, I got a call from one of our seminary workers in Cochrane. Uh, He said, Mark, you won't believe this, but I got a phone call, and he began to relate this story. It was a Syrian immigrant. Now, this immigrant had been there about 10 years, so not one of the the more recent ones that arrived. And he he just called to say, uh, I I know you're a believer, uh, and I've got some questions. Would you come meet with me and some friends? And so he drove to Calgary, and he said there were seven Syrian men in this apartment. And one by one, five of them began to recount a vision that they'd had. Different times, different places. Uh, Not identical, but very similar, where uh, a man appeared to them in white raiment, a robe that was shining like the sun, and identified himself as Jesus and said, follow me. 
Uh, the other two are there out of curiosity, but they begin to listen to the gospel as uh, our worker just opened his Bible and just began to share the gospel truth. And all seven came to faith, were baptized, and started a church. That is the power of the gospel. It still changes lives, whether they're Syrians in Canada or in northwest Mississippi. People still waiting to hear the promises of the gospel message. Clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. The power of the gospel. Well, the next verse, we find that small word again, all. But this isn't all the nations, all the people's tribes or tongues. This is all the angels. And again, the Bible doesn't say, but I speculate that probably this is the first time all the angels are together since creation. Because the name angel actually means messenger, the word angel. And so we, we know from different places, both Old and New Testament, that they're, they're sent with messages. But there's nowhere to go now. There are no messages to send. There are no trumpets to blow, no vials, no bowls to pour out. They're all present and accounted for. Why? This is history's culmination. It says all of them are standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. Uh, not too long ago, someone sent us to Poland the, uh, the DVD, I Can Only Imagine, which we enjoyed uh, watching. You've heard the song. And it speculates, what will we do? Will we dance? Will we sing? And, and I imagine we'll do all that sometime in eternity. But I believe the most natural thing we're going to do is what they do. It says they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Sometimes people ask me, 1991, we deployed to Poland with three little preschool kids. The, the Lord uh, added two Polish kids by adoption later. But sometimes people ask, well, has the church in the States changed? And, and again, I don't want to get critical, but uh, one thing I have seen is I rarely hear and I rarely observe the holiness of God among his people. God is the man upstairs. God is the one who wants to give me my best life today, I think is the name of the book. And it's all about my fulfillment and my happiness and my joy. And if somehow I'm not fulfilled, then I must not be in God's will. And I would just, there's a book called Job. You can find it, Old Testament. And it actually speaks to that. There's a Hebrews 11, actually talks about those that, are freed, and then about those who die by the, the sword, the holiness of God. You know, the only attribute of God repeated in Scripture is holy, holy, holy. We never read loving, 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 righteous, righteous. Not all those are, are equally accurate. But something about the holiness, the otherness of God at that throne room scene. I, I pray that it would capture us anew today. It's been said that God created man in his image and we have returned the favor. And we've created God in our image since then. God is not a better version of you or me. God is God. And when we understand God is God, when he says go to the nations, our response is I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Or I'll think about it. Or let me see what others say. No, we say master your servant is willing and ready to go. And that may be exactly where you live. It may be in Sioux Falls. It may be... Somewhere in the States, it may be somewhere around the world. But the holiness of God. I have seen people hear the gospel for the first time. And it is just life-changing, not just for eternity, but what am I to do now? I can think of a young man I met in Athens, a Farsi speaker. He was a refugee, and he came to our, our refugee center. And uh, as I was introduced to him, they said, Rashid, this is Mark. Mark, this is Rashid. In his broken English, he said, my name is John. Because he'd been baptized the week before. And he said, Rashid is who I was. John is who I am. Nothing 
did he own? Maybe a mattress that he slept on. But every day when that refugee center would open, he would be there to speak to other countrymen who speak Farsi so he could tell them the hope that he found in Jesus Christ. Uh, An amazing story out of the the most populous Muslim country in the world, Southeast Asia. Uh, We've had workers there for for many, many years. And uh, the church is struggling against the tide in that culture. But one of our workers is an agricultural worker. Uh, He uses agriculture to get into villages and into places where he can share the gospel. And apparently about a decade ago, he had had a project on one of the islands there and had seen a handful of farmers come to faith. Well, more recently, one of the farmers wrote to him and said, would you come again and uh, help us with our crops? But also, would you share those stories that you shared? He said, yes, I'll come again, but I want you to share the stories this time. And they agreed. And so not too long ago, he arrived uh, on this island, and, and they met that Monday morning, and they began to put into practice some of these uh, project hints to, to increase the yield of the crop there. And Monday night, they gathered a dozen, 14 uh, poor farmers, uh, illiterate, and unexpectedly and uninvited, there in that small dwelling place, Al-Qaeda representative walked in, a terrorist organization, a militant Muslim. And as he came in, he sat down in the middle of them, didn't introduce himself, didn't speak. And so the, uh, the farmer there got our missionary's attention. And they walked outside and said, what do we do? And the wise missionary said, what do you think we should do? He said, I, I believe we should pray. And then I should tell the stories. He said, let's do it. So he prayed. And they went in and just terrified this, this farmer, poor, powerless in the eyes of the world, uneducated, just began to tell the stories of Christ. He told the first story set that Monday night. Tuesday, they went back out to the fields and worked all day. Tuesday night, they gathered again. And he began the second set. The Al-Qaeda guy showed up Tuesday night. Wednesday, the third set, the Al-Qaeda guy shows up. Doesn't speak, doesn't ask any questions. He just takes notes, writes down everybody's name that's in that circle. Thursday night, they get to the cross and the resurrection. And the man gives an invitation in virtually every not yet believing farmer pray to receive Christ that night. And they thought, maybe we're out of danger. As they're about to dismiss, finally the Al-Qaeda guy speaks up the first time and he puts his hand down, he says to this man, he puts his finger in his chest, he says, I got to know, is this true? And that frightened little farmer said, sir, it's all true. And the representative said, I want to know such a God who gave his only son for me. And he bowed his head right then. And he received Christ. When he opened his eyes, he pointed to the the frail farmer. And he said, and you're going home with me now to my village. Because they've never heard this. And when Al-Qaeda says you're going home to his village, actually you are going home to his village. (laughs) And so the the farmer rode with him a a little ways to the village. By then it was getting dark. And so the Al-Qaeda rep sent a runner to all the homes in the village. And said, meet at the clearing in ten minutes. And again, when he says to jump, they did. And the whole village was gathered. And after they all arrived, he turned to the farmer and he said, tell them what you told me. And the farmer shared the gospel. Virtually the whole village came to faith. No one had to tell that Al-Qaeda guy, you know what? You may want to think about sharing this with your family. He couldn't go to sleep. He couldn't rest until his family heard the gospel. And my fear is how well we do rest when some of our families, some of our friends, some of our co-workers, they're still waiting to hear. Well, the story continues. He's no longer with Al-Qaeda because he's too busy pastoring the church in his village where he now lives. Well, what can you do? What can we do collectively? 
Well, the Bible tells us we can pray. And again, some people, okay, bless the missionary. I checked that one. No, I, I believe Jesus had more in mind when he said that in, in Matthew 9, 38. You know the context, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Then he says it's a, a command, it's an imperative. Therefore, pray ye, pray y'all to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have been obedient to that command this past week? We have desperately prayed, Lord, send out workers from America, but also from Korea, from China, from everywhere to everywhere, because that's the only way the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And literally that, that verb to send labors is to thrust out labor. It's the same word when Jesus cast out demons. That's the Greek verb. So I, in my mind, I picture, Lord, rinse their hands from the pew and send them to the nations. And maybe the Lord will speak to you in your area of your prayer life. That you and your family, you and your, your connect group maybe should pray more fervently to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Pray. Give. Uh, again, an amazing goal for this church. And you've been so faithful. I've heard stories in the past how you've given sacrificially. And we are so grateful for your faithfulness. Uh, but some maybe have, haven't been taught Stewardship, and maybe it's something new in your Christian growth. And, and the Lord would challenge you today to give sacrificially so that others can go. If you haven't heard about three years ago, our organization uh, had a financial crisis, actually. And we had to encourage people to take early retirement so that we could reduce our force. And we reduced by about 25%. A very, very difficult time. Now the Lord is blessed. And, and, and yet there's something I kept reading in, in Baptist Press and other articles that would state something like this. The Southern Baptist Convention cannot support 5,000 missionaries, 6,000 missionaries, 7,000 missionaries. And the best way I can explain that, that's not true. Our convention brings in over $12 billion annually, all of our churches together. The challenge is not how much we bring in. The challenge is that less than 2% actually goes overseas. Annually, we spend more on the interest of building loans as a convention than international missions. That's not God's heart. And how would God lead you to give? Not simply toward a goal, but toward world evangelization. Pray, give, go. Again, we, we celebrate Lottie Moon. And when she went to China, obviously she got on a boat and went for many months. Now, the beautiful thing about travel today is it depending on which way you're going, you can often get there the same day or if not the next day. And uh, you heard Jason talk about trips to Ecuador and to Japan and Southeast Asia as well as other parts in the United States. And uh, you've probably many of you have thought, yeah, that's great. I I'm so proud our church does that, but that's not for me. I don't like to eat strange things or I don't like sitting on planes. And I'm right there with you, brother, but it's, it's okay. You will actually get off the plane when it lands. And it's not as long as it, it seems at the time. And one of my pet peeves in the States is I love the song, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. But uh, I always want to stop in the middle and just ask for a show of hands. Who does not have a passport here? Okay. If you don't have a passport, don't sing. You know, because it's not true. You're, really, it should be wherever he leads within the United States, I'll go. Wherever he leads within the United States, I'll go. Or why don't you go get a passport, come back seen to your heart's content, and go wherever he leads. And the fourth is let go. I work with a lot of students. I'm often on college campuses, seminary uh, campuses. 
And how many times, I, I can't count, people came to me and said, I feel God's calling me to the international mission field, but it, it would kill my mom. Or my dad always wanted me to, to, to join the family business. Or grandma, she's got a weak heart, and I just don't know how she'd take the news. And, uh, and now I am a dad, and I am a granddad, and I want to speak to dads and to moms and to grandmothers and grandfathers that maybe God's word to you today is let go. Not simply grudgingly let go, but bless. Bless this generation. They need to go. Well, can I assure their safety? Not at all. In fact, I've already tipped my hand. I believe it will cost us more than we've ever paid to get to the final frontier. But is our king of kings worth our ultimate allegiance? Maybe to you, you need to hear let go. The cost to reach the final frontier is going to be high. And so as I come to a close, many times when I preach in the States, I read a list of names. Probably you don't know these names, but at least once in your life you would have seen them. So I'm going to ask the PowerPoint to prepare because there are 27 names. And what these names represent are 27 people who are under appointment with my organization, once called the Foreign Mission Board, now called the International Mission Board, who have died a martyr's death. According to Revelation chapter 6, they're in a white robe under an altar waiting for the last martyr to be killed. So I want to honor their memory by sharing their names with you. J. Landrum Holmes, John Westrup, Rufus Gray, Dr. Bill Wallace, Paul and Nancy Potter, Mavis Pate, Gladys Hopewell, Archie Dunaway, James Philpott, Libby Center and daughter Rachel, Mariana Gilbert, Linda Bethay, Chu Han and Ki Yi, Charles Hood, Bill Kane, Martha Myers, Kathleen Garrity, Bill Hyde, Larry and Jean Elliott, Karen Watson, David McDonald, Sid Mizell, and Cheryl Harvey. As I said, I often read those names. And uh, interesting occurrence happened about four years ago after I read that list. I was in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And after the service, after the invitation, I was visiting with people who wanted to talk about missions. And there was a young man standing off to the side, and he was waiting patiently to talk with me. And as I turned to, to look at him, I could see tears had been flowing down his, his face. And he came and introduced himself, and he's the son of Larry and Jean Elliott, two of those names I just read. And so then there were tears in my face. And he said, well, I just want to say two things. First, I want to say thank you. I've never been in service where anyone read my, my parents' names, and so thank you for remembering them. But I, I've got to say something else. I want you to hear this. It was worth it. It was worth it. His parents had served for over 30 years in South America, faithful missionaries. And at that age, when many would take retirement, they transferred to Iraq uh, post-war where they could help build water wells because there was not fresh water within reach of many of the people in that war-torn country. And they went there, obviously, to take living water as well. But because of their investment beginning to drill water wells, along with two of their colleagues, they were gunned down and they were killed there in Iraq. And here's their son who misses them terribly. And he says, it was worth it. My friend, as we live a life for the King of Kings, whether it's locally, nationally, or internationally, that is the only Life that's worth living. I began this morning by telling the story of a man who said, I want to be found.
Or there are some in your neighborhood that want to be found. And they may be waiting on you. So this morning, the invitation is simply the Great Commission. Will you go, whether it means across the street or around the world? Is your king really, really worth it?